Sometimes the truth, the ugly truth, though it stings, can be the vehicle for change in our lives. And this is clearly seen in Flannery O'Connor's short story entitled Revelation, in which she describes how the truth actually did set someone free. The story centers around Mrs. Ruby Turpin, who in her own estimation is a good, upstanding Christian woman. Ruby is thankful to Jesus that she is not white trash or poor or of another race. Ruby Turpin is unaware that she is the southern counterpart to the religious Pharisees in the Bible that she loves to read. But the ugly truth will confront Ruby in the waiting room at a doctor's office. The ugly truth will come from the mouth of a fat college girl who's ugly and has bad acne, whose name is Mary Grace. So as Ruby is waiting to see the doctor, she engages in conversation with several people in the waiting room. And through her words and thoughts, Ruby reveals that she thinks she is better than other people. Ruby is thankful to Jesus that she is not white trash, that she is not poor, that she's not of another race. Unaware of her self-righteousness, Ruby exclaims to the others in the waiting room, if it's one thing I am, it's grateful. When I think who all I could have been besides myself and what all I got, a little of everything and a good disposition besides, I just feel like shouting, thank you, Jesus, for making everything the way it is. It could have been different. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Jesus, thank you. And as soon as these pride-filled words leave Ruby's mouth, Mary Grace, the fat girl with bad acne, throws a book across the waiting room and it hits Ruby above the eye. And then the fat girl, Mary Grace, pounces on Ruby and begins choking her. And people pull the girl off Ruby and as they are dragging her away, Mary Grace says to Ruby, go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog. Ruby then returns home and she's actually startled that anyone could have anything against her. She's a good person. She has manners and a good disposition. How could anyone hate her? She is nice to the slaves that she owns. Think about that. Ruby thinks to herself, but I'm nice to the slaves that I own. Ruby thinks about how she works hard and serves at the church she attends. She's not a bad person. But then Ruby begins to see that the encounter with Mary Grace was a message from God. Ruby begins to see that God's grace was interrupting her life. And as Ruby goes to hose down the pigs on her farm, she has an epiphany. She sees a vision of people making their way to heaven. Flannery O'Connor describes the scene. A vast horde of souls were rumbling toward heaven. There were whole companies of white trash clean for the first time in their lives, and bands of Negroes in white robes, and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized as, at once as those who, like herself and her husband Claude, had always had a little of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer they were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they always had been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were singing on key, 
Yet, yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. The last, the lost, and the least were leading the way to heaven, singing off key, but singing with joy and leaping like frogs with joy. And bringing up the rear were the upright, the uptight, the religious, the prideful, those who had manas in a good disposition. They were singing on key, but they were realizing that all of their virtue, all of their pride was being burned away. And so with brutal, in-your-face storytelling, Flannery O'Connor wants us to see just how deep sin runs in our veins. Flannery's short story, Revelation, lives up to its name because it reveals us as needy sinners even when we think that we are dignified and not as bad as the freaks and lunatics of our world. And that's exactly what the law does. God's law shows us that we are sinners. The character Mary Grace functions like the law when she throws the book at Ruby Turpin and calls her a warthog from hell. The ugly girl with bad acne reveals just how ugly and self-righteous Mrs. Ruby Turpin is. That's what God's law does. It exposes us as spiritual warthogs. God's law shows us just how ugly we are. But the gospel comes in to reassure us that even though we are warthogs and white trash and freaks and lunatics, Jesus welcomes us with open arms even when we sing off key. That's the gospel, the good news. God loves us in spite of the ugly truth of our ugliness. And we'll see a little of the most dignified Mrs. Ruby Turpin in the disciples today as they fight over which one of them is the greatest. And what the disciples do not do that we will be encouraged to do today is this. Get real with the real Jesus. Jesus wants us to get real with us. Jesus wants to get real with us. But too often we're like Ruby Turpin and we're full of pride and we're blind to our sin. We don't want Jesus to come and expose us in the waiting room of a doctor's office. But Jesus will have it no other way. Jesus will have it no other way. And the disciples didn't want this kind of heart exposure either. But as J.D. Greer said, if you expose your sin, Jesus will cover it. But if you cover your sin, he will expose it. And that's what will take place in our passage today. The disciples will try to cover their sin, but Jesus will expose it. And Jesus will once again tell the disciples that he must suffer, die, and rise again. And instead of discussing his death with him, the disciples actually begin discussing which one of them is greatest and who has the most followers on Twitter. So look at Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 30, and hear the word of the Lord. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. So Jesus once again refers to himself as the Son of Man. And when Jesus says this, he is referring to what the prophet Daniel said. As the Son of Man, Jesus is the promised ruler in Daniel's prophecy who reigns in glory over every kingdom of the world. 
But the disciples just can't figure this out. Why does the Son of Man, the glorious Son of Man, need to die? He's supposed to reign. He's supposed to rule. So why all this talk of death and suffering? The disciples do not have a category for a suffering Messiah. But instead of asking Jesus about this, they start talking about which one of them is the greatest. Right in front of and within earshot of Jesus. Instead of asking questions about Jesus and his kingdom, they start focusing on their own little kingdoms of self. Right in front of Jesus. Now think about this. Jesus has just told them that he is going to suffer and die and rise again. And they change the subject to who is the greatest. Instead of asking Jesus, how is it that you, Jesus, as the glorious Son of Man, are going to die? It doesn't make any sense to us. You're supposed to, to reign, not die. Please explain that to us. But instead of asking for further clarification on the matter, the disciples start discussing among themselves who is the greatest in the kingdom. Look at verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So so instead of asking Jesus about what he said, the disciples start a discussion among themselves about who has the most followers on Twitter. They didn't want to get real with Jesus. They didn't want to answer his question because it would expose them. They didn't want to bring their sin out into the open. They didn't want to face what was in their hearts. They didn't want to face the fact that they had some embarrassing things in their hearts. The closets of their hearts were locked up and shut tight. No skeletons were coming out of their closets. But they didn't know that Jesus had the key to their hearts. What they didn't want to reveal, Jesus already knew. This is just pride. But pride won't just stay put. As Chad Bird says, pride is the ultimate whack-a-mole vice. Strike it down here, and it pops up there. You know the whack-a-mole game, right? The disciples just had their egos crushed when they couldn't cast the demon out of the boy that we saw in last week's passage. Remember? They couldn't cast the demon out of that little boy. Their egos got the breath knocked out of them over that incident. Their pride took a -a whack-a-mole beating when they couldn't cast the demon out of that boy. But pride won't stay put. Pride is like a mole. It will pop up in another hole. You can strike pride down and it will pop up somewhere else. Pride is the ultimate whack-a-mole. The disciples' pride got whacked when they couldn't cast the demon out of that boy that we saw last week. But here, on the road to Capernaum, it popped right back up. But what the disciples don't yet know is that Jesus is about to take his soft black mallet and take another swing at their little prideful mole heads once again. If they want to play whack-a-mole with Jesus, he's game, pun intended. Jesus has a roll of quarters in his pocket. He'll play whack-a-mole in an arcade with our pride all day long. That's how much he loves us. That's how much Jesus loves us. He will play whack-a-mole with our pride all day long. So please understand that about him. When Jesus confronts our pride like he's confronting the disciples' pride, it's just his love in action. 
Jesus loves us so much that he is determined to rescue us from living for our own little kingdoms. Jesus loves us enough to confront our pride and to give it a good whacking. And here's why Jesus loves to play whack-a-mole with our pride. It's because of what C.S. Lewis said. The essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. That's why Jesus confronts the disciples here. Because pride is the utmost evil. Pride makes all other sins look like flea bites. Pride is the anti-God state of mind. And Jesus loves the disciples too much to let this evil thinking persist. And so he confronts them. And Jesus does that. He sits down on the couch and he calls the 12 disciples to come to the living room for a game of whack-a-mole. I mean a Bible study. And Jesus addresses their conversation that they were having because he knew their hearts. Jesus tells them if they want to know who is the greatest among them, it's the person who is willing to be last and serve others. It's the person who serves who is the greatest. It's the person who's gripped by God's love for them and whose love for God then causes them to love and serve others. That person is the greatest. So Jesus calls the disciples to a living room and he shuts off the TV and he has them sit down. Jesus is going to lead them in a Bible study. They won't answer his questions about what they were talking about on the road, so Jesus is going to give them a Bible lesson on what they were talking about. And Jesus is going to totally flip the script here on what greatness is. Look at verse 35. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. He took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus takes a little boy and picks him up and holds him in his arms, and then Jesus tells them if they want to be great, they have to become like little children. In Matthew's account, Jesus says this, And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus tells them about greatness. The greatest person is the one who humbles himself like a little child. And then Jesus tells them that whoever receives a child the way that Jesus has received this little boy, then they have not just received a little boy, they received Jesus. And they've not just received Jesus, they have received God the Father. So Jesus is flipping the script here on what they thought the Messiah would be like and how things in the kingdom of God would work. Jesus is telling them that the kingdom of God will be accomplished not by winning, but by losing. In the kingdom of God, it's not the greatest who are received, but the least. Children are received, and that is shocking because children were looked down upon in Jesus' day. When Jesus picks up this little boy, we are not to see some cute little boy who plays with Legos and wears t-shirts with Chewbacca on it. We're not supposed to see some cute clip like Charlie Bit My Finger from YouTube. What we're supposed to see, what the disciples saw when they saw the little boy, was a loser, In Jesus' time, children were nothing more than one of life's losers. Jesus is saying that the way of the kingdom is one of loss before victory, one of suffering 
before glory. Robert Capon explains, he's telling his disciples that if they will follow him in his mysterious messiahship, they will, like him, have to become something no one has any real use or respect for. This is part and parcel of his ever-deepening awareness of himself as a Messiah who will do his work, not at the top of the heap, as everyone expects, but in the very depths of the human condition. Jesus is flipping the script here and letting the disciples know that he came for the least and the lost and the last. And to be a part of his kingdom, you have to become like a child, one of the least, one of the lost, and one of the last. To receive a child, to become like a child, is to become like a servant. Jesus is calling us to the lowly position of children. Of course, we instinctively want control in our lives, don't we? We want control, but a little child is never the one in control. Children are never in control. So to follow Jesus means you have to give up control. To follow Jesus means you have to give up control of your life. Children were looked down upon in Jesus' day, so to receive a child is to receive someone you look down upon. For the disciples to receive and welcome a child would be to receive and welcome someone that they did not have a high view of. It would be to receive life's losers. So to receive a child is to receive someone you look down upon. Let me say that again. To receive a child is to receive someone that you look down upon. Now let that sink in. Think about someone that you don't like. Think about someone right now that you don't care for, that you do not like. And for some of you, that may be me. I'm okay with that. Think about someone that you don't like, someone that you look down on. Think about someone that bothers you that really gets on your nerves, that you have whispered about to others, that you have ripped to shreds in your mind. Now, Jesus says, if you want to be great, you have to welcome that person with open arms. You have to go love and serve them. You have to welcome them. You have to welcome someone that you don't like and someone that you look down on. Wow. That's greatness. Jesus is showing us the upside-down way of the kingdom of God. Greatness in Jesus' kingdom is welcoming someone that you don't like and someone that you look down upon. We think greatness is tooting our own horn, seeing our name in lights, receiving accolades, getting that heart or that like on social media, and then looking down on other people. Jesus says greatness is moving out in love to the very person that is despised, even despised by you. Wow. Jesus' standard for greatness goes against every fabric of our being. We don't have a category for this kind of greatness, do we? How can we even do this? Jack Miller said, Will we welcome to our table only those who can welcome us back? Or will we be merciful as our Father in heaven is merciful to us? 
Without the Spirit, this mercy would be impossible. But a new age has come. The Holy Spirit has entered the world, and He has the power to enable you to do these things. By His power, you keep on moving toward others with God's merciful kindness. Keep on moving toward others with God's merciful kindness. Jesus is in the business of building a church full of people who persevere in sharing God's mercy by treating the undeserving with compassion, tenderness, and forgiveness. That's the kind of church I want us to be. A church that keeps moving on to others with God's merciful kindness. A church that perseveres in sharing God's mercy by treating the undeserving, the people that we don't like, the people that we can't stand, the people, the people that when we see them or hear their voice, it's like nails on a chalkboard. And we all have them. And treating those people with compassion and tenderness and forgiveness. Wow. Think about how things would change here if we started treating the undeserving with compassion, tenderness, and forgiveness. Think about how things would change in your home, in your neighborhood, in your workplace if you started treating the undeserving, the people that you don't like, with compassion and tenderness and forgiveness. That's the way of Jesus. That's the way of freedom. To receive a small child means you welcome the undeserving the way God has welcomed us in Christ. But to receive a small child also means that you become a servant. In other words, small children have to be served. Small children need help pouring the cereal. They need help pouring the milk, and they need help carrying the cereal bowl over to the table, or they will spill it. To receive a child is to serve. And that's actually what Jesus has been doing with the disciples all along, because the disciples are just toddlers. They're toddlers that Jesus has been feeding and serving and helping this whole time. And so to receive a child is to serve. And if the disciples want to be great, then they will have to learn how to love and serve their neighbors the way a parent has to love and serve their children. The disciples will have to learn how to pick up after messy kids, messy people who make a wreck of their lives. They're going to have to learn how to serve people, people who are needy, people who are helpless, People who make a mess of their lives, people who lack wisdom, people who need to grow up, people who don't have their act together yet, people who are still learning and growing, people who spiritually are still like toddlers. They're going to have to do what parents have to do day in and day out, year after year, serve. And not just serve, oftentimes they're going to have to serve without any thanks, without any accolades, without any awards. Parents, let me ask you. Do your children always say thank you after you serve them? Do they have an awards ceremony and hand you an Oscar for your performance in the kitchen at dinner time? Do they wake up in the morning and wipe the crust from their eyes and say, Oh, mother, oh, father, in the providence of God, I have been born at such a time as this so that I might be blessed to have you both as my caregivers. Bless you, bless you both. Do they do that? Probably not. Usually... It's something like this. There's nothing to eat. I don't like spaghetti. Why can't I go to the movies with my friends? You never do anything for me. You never let me do anything. And that's what it's like to serve in any kind of ministry. It's what it's like to serve your neighbors. The neighbors you live with in your home. 
the neighbors you work with, the neighbors who attend this church. To love and serve your neighbors means that you will have to deal with ungrateful people and messy people and broken people and complaining people and people who are still learning and growing. Serving people is like serving kids. So to be great, you have to receive God's children. You have to serve God's children like a parent. You have to sacrifice. You have to humble yourself. To be great, you have to humble yourself. Tim Keller says, If we were to meet a truly humble person, we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. They would not be always telling us they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying they're a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself. Not needing to connect things with myself. True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. Isn't that good? Pick up that book. It's, a very, it's, it's very short. The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, The Path to True Christian Joy by Tim Keller. It's worth it. That's just a portion of it. If you struggle with the fear of man, that book will help set you free. But isn't that good? That is the opposite of what the disciples are doing here. On the road to Capernaum, all they were doing was talking about how great they were. But gospel humility is not needing to think about myself. Not needing to connect things with myself. Not making everything about me. True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience and every conversation with myself. And so we want to create a church culture here at Grace like this where we don't, cre- we don't connect every experience with us. Where we are totally interested in other people. Gospel humility is simply when you learn the freedom that comes when you get real with the real Jesus. Learn to get real with the real Jesus. He will have it no other way. Mark tells us in verse 34, look there again. But they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And what does Jesus do? He exposes their hearts. Understand this grace. Jesus meets you at the junkyard of your heart. Jesus does his work not at the top of the heap as everyone expects. He works in the very depths of the human condition. Jesus meets you at the ugly places in your heart. You have to be comfortable with this truth if you want to follow Jesus. He will only meet you at the bottom of your heart where all the junk is. So learn to get real with the real Jesus and bring your junk out into the light. Don't be silent like the disciples. It's true. If we try to cover our sin, God will expose it. But if we confess our sin, God will cover it. We want to be a church. We want to be disciples who get real with Jesus, who confess our sins. We don't want to be like the disciples and keep silent. 
Let's get real and then let's be free. Let's get real this morning. How have you connected every experience, every conversation in your life with you? How have you connected every experience, every conversation, everything that's happening in your life, how have you connected it with you? How have you made it all about you? And who are you looking down on today? Who do you whisper about? Who do you have conversations about in your own heart? Who have you put down as you have lifted yourself up? We all have answers to these questions, don't we? And as we'll see next week, you can't whack-a-mole this stuff. You can't whack-a-mole pride. It must be put to death. If you try to whack-a-mole pride, it just comes back up. Pride has to be killed. And that's what we'll see next week. So to get real with the real Jesus this morning, you have to stop pretending that you are good. Stop trying to pretend that you are better than others. Stop being a Ruby Turpin. To get real with the real Jesus of the Bible, you have to stop pretending. Listen, Jesus knows who you are. Jesus knows who you are. He knows the real you. He knows the real conversations that you have on the road to Capernaum, and he knows the real conversations that you have going on in your heart. He knows that you don't measure up. God knows that you still fall short of his righteous requirement in the law, and that's why he has given you the gift of his son Jesus. Here's the good news of the gospel. You can run to God this morning and admit to him all of your embarrassing self-glory. Because it's embarrassing when you think about it, isn't it? You can run to Jesus this morning and admit all of your embarrassing self-glory where you have lived for yourself. And you can have the assurance that when you do that and you come to Jesus and say, here's all of my embarrassing self-glory. I have not lived for you and your kingdom. I've lived for me. I connect everything in, in my life to me. It's personal. I'm the king. I'm the queen. And I'm bringing all of that embarrassing self-glory to you today, Jesus. Do you know what the good news of the gospel is? That he will not mock you. He will not slap you away, push you away. He will not shame you. Why? Because your standing before God is not based in, on any of your performance. It's based solely on the spotless performance of his son, Jesus. So you can take all of your embarrassing junk and you can run to Jesus with it. When we receive his grace, we are so inspired by the wonder of it that we can get real with the real Jesus and say, Lord, there are some things about me that even I don't like. I don't want to keep silent about them anymore. You can go to Jesus and say, I don't want to keep silent about this stuff anymore. I don't like it. Help me. When you get real with the real Jesus, he will turn your life upside down while giving you a rest. You have never known the rest that you have always craved. And Jesus will require you to face your unworthiness without ever making you feel unloved or embarrassed. That's the real Jesus. He can expose your heart, but do it in a way that never makes you feel unloved and never makes you feel embarrassed. Jesus can put you in your place without ever putting you down. That's the real Jesus. 
The real Jesus doesn't shame you. The real Jesus can expose your heart without leaving you feeling embarrassed. The real Jesus will graciously humble you with the fact that you are much less than you thought you were, like the disciples here. And yet at the same time, he will assure you that you can be far more than you have ever dreamed. There's hope with the real Jesus. And when you get real with the real Jesus, he will enable you by his grace to face shocking truths about yourself that you have hesitated to consider. Things that you try to suppress, things that you don't want coming to the surface. Jesus will tell you again and again what you aren't and at the same time, he will welcome you again and again to what you can now be by the power of the Spirit and by his grace. And when you get real with the real Jesus and you don't keep silent like the disciples, when you bring all of your embarrassing self-glory, all that junk in your heart that you're embarrassed about, when you can bring that to Jesus, he will make you as uncomfortable as you have ever been. Because it's uncomfortable coming clean with Jesus. And yet at the same time, he will offer you a more lasting comfort than you have ever known. Jesus will decimate your little kingdom of self. He will destroy it. He'll take a wrecking ball to it. And then he'll introduce you to a much better king and a much better kingdom. Jesus will make you sadder than you have ever been as he exposes your heart. And yet at the same time, he'll give you greater cause for celebration than you ever dreamed. Getting real with the real Jesus is fueled by humility. There's sadness and there's celebration. There's confession and there's celebration. There's confession of real sin and a celebration of a real Savior who wants to set you free. Holding on to our embarrassing junk is not going to set us free. It weighs us down. It keeps us in chains. Confession of sin and celebration of a real Savior. With the real Jesus, you get an accurate sense of who you are and what you need. And you also learn to celebrate the one who gives it. Your awareness of your sin and the promise of salvation daily will drive you to Jesus where you learn to sit at his feet and you grieve your sin and you give praise for the grace that meets you right in the middle of it. You grieve your embarrassing self-glory. You grieve the embarrassing, shameful things that you think, say, and do, and yet at the same time, you give praise to God for the grace that meets you right there in the middle of that embarrassing stuff. The real Jesus went all the way down to the pit to save you. He doesn't save good people. He saves sinners. Jesus took your pride, how you look down on others, how I look down on others, and he went to the cross with it. And that's where the power is. When you know who you really are, and you tell Jesus the truth about who you really are, and he meets you with his grace. That's where the freedom is. That's when you learn to dance in the freedom of the gospel. So do that this week. Don't rush the process. Find some time to get along with Jesus and just open it up and say, here's all the stuff. And I'm going to talk about each one and repent and confess each one of this stuff. I'm just so embarrassed by Jesus. And he'll meet you there with his grace so that you can dance in the freedom of the gospel. So this call to get real with the real Jesus 
and to not keep silent like the disciples. It's a call to humility. It's why Jesus brings the child into the Bible study. It's a call to humility, and humility grows in a heart that is centered on Jesus. That's the environment where humility thrives and grows, a heart that is centered on the gospel, a heart that is centered on Jesus. And so the gospel is actually a very powerful assault on our pride. Milton Vincent says, preaching the gospel to myself each day mounts a powerful assault against my pride and serves to establish humility in its place. Nothing suffocates my pride more than daily reminders regarding the glory of my God, the gravity of my sins, and the crucifixion of God's own Son in my place. Pride wilts in the atmosphere of the gospel. So don't be afraid today. Don't hesitate. Don't delay. Don't hide. Don't keep silent like the disciples. Get real with the real Jesus. He's loving. He's kind. He's merciful. He's gracious. Get real with the real Jesus, and then you'll dance. Then you'll leap like frogs on the way to heaven, shouting and clapping. You might still sing off key, but you're on your way to see Jesus, and that's all that matters. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled by your word this morning because every single one of us have been the disciples. Every single one of us think too highly of ourselves than we should. Every single one of us have elevated ourselves and our own little kingdoms above others and, more importantly, above you. And we've looked down upon others, Father. And we repent this morning and we say, forgive us and cleanse us and wash us. We want to be a church that gets real with the real Jesus, that confesses our sin brings all of this embarrassing junk out into the light so that you can cover it. A church that is real with our sin. And yet, at the same time, Lord, we can celebrate a real Savior who lived and died and rose again for us. So would you help us, Father? Help us to marinate in the gospel so that we can launch an assault on our pride and humble us and make us to dance and leap like frogs on our way to heaven because you're so merciful. Forgive us all and help us in Jesus' name. Amen.